Naomi intends to head to Bethlehem, back to Bethlehem, to try and have some semblance of a life. And initially, both of her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, head back with her. But she then strongly urges both of them, essentially telling them that there isn't a future for them in Bethlehem, that they should go back to their families and find husbands, live happily ever after. Naomi even calls on Yahweh to provide for both her daughter-in-laws. And that sounds sensible, so Orpah does it. She goes back, she kisses her mother-in-law, there's a moment of shedding tears, and she goes back to Moab. But Ruth Lee boldly proclaimed and said, Your God, my God. Naomi and Ruth then continue to Bethlehem. We see that Ruth clung to Naomi. In chapter 2, the narrator lets the readers know, the audience know, about a guy named Boaz. Remember in the first verse of chapter 2, and who was a guy of good reputation and a relative of Elimelech and Naomi. And Ruth goes to glean in the fields to try and, and scrounge up some food for her and Naomi. Remember, we talked about how we see that she happened into the field of Boaz. And we talked about these happen-tos that happen in our lives, right? That are evidences of God's hand and providence in our lives. And Boaz comes, he finds out who she is and, and shows her, as well as Naomi, immeasurable kindness, particularly in the way of provision and protection. And we talked a lot about the providence of God. And we talked how, how there's pain, but also purpose and provision under the providence of God. And so we'll kick off this morning really also looking at the end of, of chapter 2. And in these verses, we're, we're introduced to this concept of the Goel, or, or the kinsman redeemer. We see this concept described in a few different places in the Old Testament. Broadly speaking, the kinsman redeemer was one who had a, a covenant obligation to look after the family of a male relative who had died. And at different places in Old Testament law, in Leviticus 25, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 25, we see how, how kind of the nuts and bolts of, of how this can look different. And, and trust me on this, it's very easy to get lost in the weeds, so to speak, and some of the minutiae of how this concept of the kinsman redeemer is carried out. Trust me, I've, I've been, I've trampled all through those weeds the past several weeks. Um, and, and it's beautiful, but, but we, we also see this concept of the kinsman redeemer closely related with the law of the Leverite marriage. And so we, and we see kind of both of those at play here. And as we walk through Ruth, chapters 3 and 4, here's what important, is important for us to remember. In Old Testament law, God instituted a way for the least of these, those marginalized in society, particularly orphans and widows, to be cared for by the people of God. And that's some of the beauty behind this law of the kinsman redeemer and even the Leverite marriage. And of course, Naomi knows this, and she knows that Boaz is a relative. Now, we don't know exactly to what degree Boaz was, was related to Elimelech. But Naomi says, a close relative of ours. Now, this is interesting because Naomi then clears any ambiguity about how she feels about Ruth now, right? Because she says, she doesn't say, Boaz is a relative of mine or mine and Elimelech's. She says what? He's a relative of of ours, which is beautiful. 
So in her view, Ruth was also entitled to the benefits of a Goel, of the Redeemer. And over the next two chapters, three and four, we're going to observe this plan that is obviously taking place under the providence of God, a redemption for Ruth and Naomi. In verses one through five, um, we see something. We see that Naomi is seeking rest for Ruth. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say, Ruth chapter three is one of the most perplexing chapters of the scriptures that I've looked at in a long time. There is a lot there. There's a lot of dynamic to it. There's a lot of layers to it. And as I mentioned last week, we're not going to be able to dive into every detail and and really dissect every bit of this chapter, but it is beautiful, particularly with how the original language is used. There's so many layers, dynamics, twists, turns. And in this chapter that has spurred a lot of discussion and debate among theologians and historians. But in verse 23 of chapter 2, we see that Ruth still had a need for a husband. Now, her, her provision for food, her and Naomi's provision for food had been met, at least for the foreseeable future, but she still had a need for a husband. Naomi wasn't going to be around forever. In chapter 2, we see that Ruth and Naomi's need for food, like I just said, was met. But now we'll see if there's a plan to meet Ruth's need for a husband. And as I mentioned, Naomi seeks rest for Ruth. We know enough about the time of Judges to know that it was a very, that the life of a widow was very difficult, very tough, Right? Because we know that the males and the families did a lot to provide for the family. And so a widow didn't have a way to be provided for unless she was redeemed. Now we see how Boaz was graciously meeting Ruth and Naomi's need for food. And was allowing Ruth to to reap in his fields. But at some point the harvest was going to end, right? What then? This Hebrew word translated here as rest is the word Manoah. Now, it's different than the word translated Sabbath, which we see throughout the Old Testament. But it is the same word used in chapter 1, verse 9 of the book of Ruth here, where, where Naomi says, I want to praise to Yahweh to, to provide rest for her daughters-in-law. And so here in chapter 3, she says, shouldn't I seek rest for you? Same word, Manoah. This word literally means a state, a condition of rest, a resting place. Now, we could probably dissect Naomi's motive here a little bit. And we would probably learn that this was twofold. She truly did want Ruth to have a husband and be provided for. But remember, she stated that Boaz was one of our redeemers. So she knew that there was something in it for her as well. And she still had a desire to be cared for. And the name and lineage of her late husband and sons be continued and not erased from history. And we'll see that redemption does supply rest and Manoah for Ruth as we see this plan of redemption unfold for Ruth and Naomi. But the plan in which Naomi devises here is one of those issues that I mentioned earlier that that has created some debate and, and some discussion among theologians because and we read it a while ago, on the service, it's a little risque, right? Um, 
Now we know that, that winnowing was a very joyous occasion. And although it was work, it was a celebration of the harvest that Yahweh had provided. And this was probably about six to eight weeks after Ruth and Boaz's first encounter. And in ancient Israel, the threshing floor was an interesting place, especially when we view it in light of the times it is mentioned in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, because of the celebration that would take place and in the substances that may be consumed while at the threshing floor, it could be quite a scene. Some theologians even said it was almost like the nightclub of Israel. And again, let's think back on what was rampant during the time of the judges. Everyone did what was right in what? Their own eyes. This was a dangerous place. And we see that Naomi is wanting Ruth, in a sense, to get dolled up, go down to a potentially dangerous place. And approach Boaz. Now, Ruth is not seducing Boaz into improper sexual intimacy, as we'll see. But rather, she's going dressed as a bride would be dressed. In reading various commentaries on this chapter, it's kind of a mixed bag. Some theologians, such as one of my favorites, Sinclair Ferguson, thinks this was an extremely rash decision on Naomi's part. Like, what was she thinking? While others, such as Christopher Ashe, view Naomi's plan as the concrete expression of a covenant faith. But Robert Hubbard says this, she models one way, and this is interesting, she models one way in which divine and human actions work together. Believers are not to wait passively for events to happen, rather they must seize the initiative when an opportunity presents itself. And knowing how the story ends, as I'm sure many of you do, does point us to ponder this idea of how human interactions interact with God's plan. And knowing what, what he, we know about the dangers, particularly for young women during the day of the judges, we do know that whatever Naomi's motive, Ruth's reputation and personal safety were at risk in this moment. It's fair to say, though, that Naomi probably had a sense of what God's purposes may be but she takes it upon herself to rush it along a bit. There's also debate, particularly because of some of the Hebrew terminology used on whether or not a sexual encounter between Ruth and Boaz took place here. From what we've seen about Boaz and Ruth, they're upstanding folks. And also our, our, our narrator is very careful not to indicate any type of sexual impropriety. That being said, this is a very discreet encounter with good reason, reputation, safety, Ruth is not to let Boaz know that she is there. She hides in the shadows until the time is right. This was a gamble. Ruth and Naomi both gambled that Boaz would not take unfair advantage of the moment. And were she to be seen in the open, there might be a scandal, and Boaz would certainly send her home. In going, starting in verses 6 through 14, we see something else that's offered in redemption here. We see this idea of refuge and redemption. Now, I want to read these verses again. I know I read them, but, but they're, they're super poignant. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. 
And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Now, I want you to remember this part. You made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet, presumably as a way to wake him up. No one likes cold feet while you're sleeping. We know that. It says, and behold, he woke up. Now, this is mind-blowing. Dressed as a bride in the dark of night, Ruth the Moabitess essentially proposes to Boaz. Because she says, spread your wings over your servant, your garment. And in this time, that was a, essentially a ceremonial picture of, of a proposal for marriage. So Ruth the Moabitess, in the dark of night, is proposing to Boaz. Earlier in the book, Ruth identified herself as an unworthy foreigner without the standing of one of Boaz's servants. Now, Ruth is boldly identifying herself as Boaz's and asks him to cover her. As I said, corner is the same Hebrew word as wings and was often associated with marriage. Remember in verse 12 of chapter 2, Boaz had affirmed Ruth for coming under what? God's what? Wings of refuge. Same word. Now Ruth is urging Boaz to cover her with his wings. And when I see the image of, of wings in the word of God, or I can't help but have this imagery of the covering of the wings being a place of refuge. And Psalm 91.4 comes to mind. It says this, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Thus their marriage was to be the means by which Yahweh protected Ruth and at the same time paid her in full for her past kindness. And theologically, God worked here, not by direct intervention, but within righteous human acts. Now, what Ruth was asking Boaz to do, though, was to act according to the spirit of the law of the kinsman redeemer, even though he wasn't under any legal obligation. She appealed to him to be the family member who, at his own cost, would act to rescue those whose future had been blighted, even though he didn't have to do so. Naomi is seeking refuge, but not only for her, but also for Naomi in the line of Elimelech. Now, this is interesting, Ruth's surprising departure here, because remember, Naomi doesn't tell Ruth to say this to Boaz, does she? She says, just go to him, and what? He'll tell you what to do. But she comes up with this, cover me with your wings, with your garment, with the corner of your garment. 
Naomi's instructions intended simply to obtain a husband for Ruth. But by invoking the Goel custom on her own initiative, however, Ruth subordinated her own happiness to the family duty of providing Naomi an heir. And in demonstrating remarkable initiative and defiance of custom, she embodied the Israelite ideal of hesed. So this last kindness that Boaz is talking about, it, at first glance, it looks like he's saying, it looks like he's saying, because you're, you're pursuing me and not younger men, right? Who may be more attractive. No, this last kindness he's talking about is that Ruth is pursuing this, this kinsman redeemer, this provision of the law and claiming it so that Naomi's line, so that Elimelech's line is preserved. So she's putting her own desires of whatever she may looking, be looking for in the husband and saying, we need a redeemer. This is that last kindness that Boaz is referring to. He's saying that her kindness, her covenant loyalty to Naomi by being willing to provide her an heir even exceeds her earlier acts of kindness of leaving her homeland and family to show devotion to Naomi and Yahweh. We don't even know if Ruth fancied Boaz or even in the least bit thought he was attractive. But what we do know is that Ruth is willing to set aside her desires to be willing to raise up an heir for Elimelech. Verse 11 Boaz states that he will do what Ruth has asked of him. He even states that all of Bethlehem has recognized Ruth as a woman of noble character. Do you recognize that description from somewhere else in the scriptures? Growing up in youth group, my youth pastor would refer to it as a P31. He'd say, as you grow older, look for a P31 woman. He referred to, to Proverbs 31, and this is the only other place in Scripture where this phrase is used to describe a woman. And what's also interesting is in some of the earlier versions of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth is right after the book of Proverbs. So the readers, they read Proverbs 31 and then step right into the story of Ruth, which is an embodiment of what's described in Proverbs 31. Isn't that interesting? That was a free nugget, by the way. It appears as though the man of noble character and the woman of noble character are going to be united in holy matrimony. We think. But then what does Boaz say? He goes, there is something you should know. There is a redeemer closer than I. There may be a curveball. Boaz tells Ruth that there's a man who's more closely related to Elimelech and Naomi than he was. And here's what's interesting. Boaz could have accepted Ruth's proposal, and they could have moved forward and, and lived happily ever after. Boaz obviously cared for Naomi, and he cared for Ruth. We see that in his provisions in chapter 2, and his displays of generosity up to this point. He could have immediately taken him under his wing, but as we've seen, Boaz is a worthy and noble man. He wasn't going to take any shortcuts. 
He states that if the other Redeemer will redeem Naomi and Ruth, then great. But if not, he'll do it. And then what does he tell Ruth to do? Lie down and wait. In Boaz and Ruth, we see here a reliance on God's plan and provision. So in this, when we are redeemed, we are relying on God's plan and provision. Naomi and Boaz both relied on God's plan and provision. They rest and rely. God's going to provide a redeemer for Ruth and Naomi in one way or the other. And in verses 15 through 17, let's read those. It says, And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So they wake up in the morning, but for reasons stated earlier, Ruth needs to get out of there before daybreak. But take a look at what Boaz does. Even in the meantime of finding out if the other redeemer will redeem Ruth, Boaz still shows immense care for Ruth and Naomi. He helps her go home without being seen, but then he fills her shawl with barley. We don't know the precise measurements, but many historians think this equated to about 80 pounds of barley. Remember, earlier in chapter 3, Naomi tells Ruth to go down to the threshing floor. What goes down, what? Must come up. So this woman, Ruth, now is carrying 80 pounds of barley, walking back to her home. She walks in, and the English translation says, Naomi says to Ruth, how did you fare, my daughter? <laughs> I just imagine her coming in, dragging this shawl, and just dumps it. <laughs> it's like, how do you think I fared? <laughs> Looky here. <laughs> but what's interesting here, when it's, it's translated into Hebrew, this phrase here is more accurately translated, who are you? It's the same phrase in verse 9, when Boaz wakes up and says, who are you? It's that same phrase there. That's interesting. Ruth then tells Naomi all that Boaz had done for her. But in the retelling of this from Ruth to Naomi, their narrator only includes one detail of that conversation. Verse 17, right? And this word translated empty-handed is the same word which was translated empty in verse 21 of chapter 1, when Ruth or Naomi says, I've come back empty. Boaz tells Ruth, hey, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed here. And gives her an overwhelming provision of barley. You see that reversal there? In redemption, there's reversal. Reversal. 
As theologian Robert Hubbard points out, the word repetition sets the earlier scene beside the present one in the reader's mind. We see a beautiful reversal of the emptiness Naomi expresses in chapter 1. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author wanted to make sure we as readers, as the audience, saw this reversal take place as this process of redemption is unfolding. Now let's read chapter 4, and I, I promise we'll go through this one a little quickly. We're on the downhill slide there. Let's read chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by, and Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took then ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Uh Uh-oh. Curveball, right? Then Boaz said, But the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, from the hand of Naomi, rather, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Sure, he'd be sure to emphasize that Ruth is a Moabite. (laughs) The widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. That's gross. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, Elimelech and Naomi's two sons. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphtha and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We'll stop right there. Now, legal decisions were made at the city gates. It was also kind of like the market. It was the epicenter of a small Israelite town. And first thing we need to note here, this is more of an administrative process, not necessarily a judicial one. Until Boaz or the other redeemer asked the elders to ratify the results of the proceedings, the elders are serving in the capacity of witnesses here. 
It says, behold, just as, look who happened by. It's one of the, another one of those happen-tos that we talk about, right? It says, the other Redeemer happened to walk by. Why doesn't the author mention the name of the other Redeemer? You notice that? Surely he knew his name. I mean, he could identify that he was a Redeemer. This was a formal legal proceeding. The author actually writes the phrase, and don't, don't judge my Hebrew too bad here, Poloni Almoni. It's a rhyming but meaningless phrase as roughly equivalent to Mr. So-and-so. So basically, Boaz says, hey, you, come over here, sit down. So he comes over. Again, we don't necessarily know why, but it's interesting to note that this man, this other possible redeemer, remains nameless. And he says something like this, Naomi has a field. She needs to sell it to raise money to live on. If there were a kinsman redeemer, however, he could buy that field and keep it in the family. Of course, the buyer would ultimately get to add the property to his own inheritance, provided that there are no children involved. And you're first in line. Are you interested? It seemed like such a promising opportunity that the kinsman redeemer instantly agreed. Think about it. Financially, this was an investment without risk. Now, Steve, in your line of work, if there was investments that people can make without risk, they'd be lined out your door, right? This was an investment without risk, it seemed. But Boaz then proceeds to tell this redeemer of the other part of the equation. Boaz was saying, one more thing. When you acquire the field, along with, Ruth, you, along with it comes Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the dead man whose field it was. You must marry her in order to raise up a child for the dead man, and a child who will inherit the field when he grows up. We see here in the next verse that that Redeemer says, I can't do it. It'll jeopardize my own inheritance. So starting in verse 7 through verses 10, we get to start hearing the wedding bells now. Because this other Redeemer has said, no, I'm not going to do it. You, Redeemer. In verses 11 and 12, we start seeing a rejoicing. So in redemption, there's rejoicing. This declaration tied up several thematic loose ends. It finally granted Ruth's earlier petition for marriage, provided the security and reward for which Naomi and Boaz prayed. And further, as Boaz's wife, Ruth finally enjoyed full membership in the covenant community of Israel. And listen to what the crowd proclaimed. Explicitly compared Ruth to Israel's founding mothers, Rachel and Leah, and to Judah's tribal mother, Tamar. A Moabite foreigner now being compared to the first mothers of Israel. They're proclaiming this. They're wishing the covenant God will make Ruth, the Moabite widow, like a patriarchal mother in Israel. They're rejoicing because of the redemption that has taken place. And we're starting to get clued in to a bigger story here, right? And starting in verse 13 through 16, we see this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. 
He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In redemption, there's restoration. I want to say that again. In redemption, there's restoration. This is the only the second time in the book of Ruth where the Lord is said to explicitly be the author of the actions in the book. Although we, of course, see his providential hand on every page. The first was in verse 6 of chapter 1 when he came to the aid of his people by removing the famine. And this is the second. This older man about whose ability to father a child may have been in doubt. And this childless widow who didn't conceive in the first decade of her first marriage, they have a child. The covenant God comes to the aid of his people, not now with food, but with the conception and birth of a son. This is a beautiful scene. Naomi, bitter Naomi, who had lost her husband, lost both of her sons, appearing to have no future now, got to hold in her lap this little lad. Now your version probably says child, right? This is the first use of this word since verse 5, chapter 1, when Naomi was left without her two lads. And now we see that she holds this lad in her lap. How about that reversal? I mean, because of redemption, Ruth became royalty. Verses 18 through 22 Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Neshon. Neshon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This lad became the grandfather of King David. The king that is many times referred to as, man, as a man after God's own heart. God's gracious care for two poor widows is part of a larger plan that benefits all of Israel and ultimately all who are called into the kingdom of God. It started with God's care for his two, these two poor widows. We see in the giving of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 that God promises a descendant of God to reign on the throne over the people of God. And in Matthew chapter 1, we trace this lineage through the patriarchs, through Roth and Boaz, to David, and then ultimately to Jesus, the better Boaz, the kinsman redeemer for those who are called into a relationship with him, into his kingdom, our kinsman redeemer. When I think on this reality that because we are redeemed in Christ, we are considered joint heirs with Christ, right? Scripture says that. I can't help but recall the words of Peter writing to those early Christians who were scattered because of persecution, experiencing all sorts of pain and struggle, relying on the purpose and provision of God's providence. He says this, 
in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. A what? Royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you were foreign. But now you are God's people. You've been brought in. You've been invited to the table, as we talked about last week. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Then a little later in the letter, he writes this in chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, friends, this is probably a little more mumbled and jumbled than last week was, and and forgive me. But in this beautiful book of Ruth, please hear this. We're reminded that although we will experience pain on this earth, we can trust in the purpose and provision of God's providence. And because he redeems those whom he has called, In that redemption, we experience rest, refuge, reversal, rejoicing, and restoration as members of his kingdom. Redeemed, redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed. His child and forever I am. Let's pray. Father, you are good. I'm not worthy to be redeemed. But while I was yet a sinner, you demonstrated your own love for me. You sent your son Christ to die for me. You sent Christ to die for your people whom you've called unto yourself. And I pray that because of the redemption that that happened, not because of anything that we could bring to the table, but because of your will and your purposes, Father, I pray that we proclaim that redemption in how we live, walk, talk as we walk through our lives. And I pray that everywhere we go, in every situation, in every moment of pain, in every difficult circumstance, in every joyous circumstance, that we proclaim redemption, proclaim that you have redeemed us for your purposes and glory. In your name we pray. Amen.